Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. It's March, and we are celebrating International Women's Day. In this episode, Dean and I discuss one of the most important issues in the field of medicine, gender bias in healthcare, which is an epidemic, unfortunately. Diseases presenting differently in women are often missed or misdiagnosed. And those affecting mainly women are understudied, undertreated, and frequently misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. Now this has a major negative consequence for both medical practice and the health of women. Join us as we discuss these statistics and what we can do to change the system and help women get the appropriate attention and treatments for various diseases. Also, for those of you who are interested in learning more about brain health and the work we're doing across the country with our NeuroPlan, we recently released a free 14-day program that will help you take the first steps towards transforming your life and optimizing your cognitive health. Visit theneuroplan.com and check out the NeuroPlan Academy to claim your free copy and get access to some of our favorite recipes as well. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Mary was a 34-year-old young lady who had a long history of migraines. Her migraines started when she was in her early teens and had persisted and had debilitated her throughout her life. But she had managed to actually finish high school at the top of her class and finish college summa cum laude and do fairly well even in her graduate school because of frequent treatments with medication, frequent times that she took off to give her brain a rest. She did whatever she had to to maintain her sanity and in the face of this uh, horrible disease that had affected her entire life. So she was fairly functional and everybody knew her to be functional. Yet, because she had to go to the clinic and to the emergency room on a regular basis, she had noticed a sense of bias, a sense that the physicians that saw her felt as if she was having too many problems, more than expected. And they started to treat her differently. This had made her self-conscious and made her control herself to actually not go to the emergency room when she even uh, had to go to the emergency room. There were days that she couldn't leave her bed. She couldn't leave her room. The lights had to be completely off. There had to be no sound. The pain was excruciating. She would be crying and yet she would not go to the emergency room. Despite this, she had to go to the emergency room on this one morning. It was Sunday morning. It was pretty cold. She actually dragged herself out of the bed, called her brother and said, I just can't take it anymore. I have to go to the emergency room. Her brother, Mike, took her to the emergency room and while in the emergency room, waiting for hours on a gurney in the hallway, she started to feel this pain just getting worse and worse. In fact, for the last few nights, it had woken her up from sleep. The pain was so bad that she had started to cry in the middle of the night. While waiting for the doctor, she started to feel the sense of numbness in her left arm. And she started actually to see these lights in her vision. She was feeling that this was something different. She was experiencing the kind of pain that she had never experienced before. It was eight hours into this experience in the emergency room when Suddenly, she got the curtains pulled aside and this young man came into the room and said, Mary, I hear you're having a headache. I've seen you here before. Tell me about your headache. And Mary could barely speak. And the few words that she could other, she said, I'm having kind of pain that I've never experienced before. This is the worst headache of my life. The doctor was incredulous. You could actually see it in his face. He just went on with his conversation as though Mary had said nothing differently. He continued doing, going through the routine, 
So look at me, look at my fingers, look at my other finger. Now look at the light, look up, look down, hold my finger, squeeze my fingers, lift up your leg, stick out your tongue. Let me lift up. Do you feel this sensation? Do you feel this sensation? This had gone on for 20 minutes and Mary just followed commands, despite the fact that she could barely hear him by now. And at the end of all this, the doctor left the room without even acknowledging her. And another two hours had passed before anybody could come in. At this point, Mary was getting nauseous, was starting to throw up, and she could no longer feel her left arm. A few minutes later, the doctor comes in and says, we checked your labs and your labs are fine. I think you're having another migraine. I wouldn't worry too much about it. I've given you some medications. Take these every six hours and I think you'll be fine. You don't have to worry about anything. Mary said, I truly think that this is different, but I will trust you and what you say and I'll go home and we'll see what happens. But I think this is very different. I can barely speak. The doctor said, don't worry about it. I've seen this before. This is something I see on a regular basis. It's a, you know, a complicated migraine. That's what they call it. It's a complicated migraine. You're going to be fine. As Mary got home, she laid in bed. Her arm was feeling completely numb. Her headache was getting worse, if it was even possible. She actually was not able to see light from one eye. And at this point, she fell asleep. In the morning, when she woke up, she still had a headache. In fact, worse than before. And at this point, she couldn't feel her arm. And she actually couldn't even move her arm. She yelled and barely some sound came out of her mouth. And the family ran in and they saw that she had this facial droop and her arm wasn't moving. And at this point, her leg wasn't moving either. And she could barely speak. There was a slur in her speech. And immediately they called 911 and she was taken to the emergency room. Mary was found to have a stroke, a hemorrhagic stroke, a bleed that basically that the artery had blown in her brain. And she had a severe stroke that probably would be difficult to recover from because the amount of damage done to the brain was massive. Over the next few hours, thousands of dollars and many doctors later, the conclusion was that this was an irreversible stroke and she would have to be intubated and put in the uh, ICU and her blood pressure had to be managed and we will have to see what happens. But reality was that everybody knew that recovery was going to be very poor given that the area of the stroke was massive. After several days in the ICU, she was taken to the floor, the regular floor. And at this point, there was very little she could do. In fact, the area of the stroke had expanded. She could barely speak. She could barely move her arm, actually the entire body on the left side. And the family were just overwhelmed. Day after day, physical therapy would come and go through the same motions. She was then later taken to rehabilitation and she was left with severe deficits. The reality was that this could have easily been avoided because a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which results usually as a consequence of blood pressure and weak arteries, if caught early enough, can be averted by managing the blood pressure, by managing the aneurysm. But she was disregarded and it was passed on as if it was her regular migraine. This case is not a unique one. This is a common presentation. We see this often, the headaches that are misread. But it, what's important to know here is that this happens much more in women. We use Mary's case to kind of highlight the fact that this kind of mismanagement, this disparity, this bias is ubiquitous in the healthcare field. It's not to create a 
political or a chasm as it pertains to sex or gender or but to bring awareness to a reality. And in this podcast and the next, we will talk about all the different disparities and the truly scary numbers that show us that women suffer profoundly more when it comes to these dispar because of these disparities than men. And all it takes is first and foremost, ownership of this flaw and this bias and acknowledging it and making the right changes and for women to speak up. The story we just told you speaks to both sides of that. The men, and in general, the healthcare system that actually ignores women's cases more than they do men's. And the fact that often women are silenced both externally and they self-silence because they believe that if they say something, they are going to seem as though they're nagging or they're, they're being uh, overly aggressive. And these personal pictures that are painted of women who speak up. And reality is it's absolutely the opposite. So we wanted to kind of bring these cases to light because the numbers will be scary once we speak to you about this. And also at the same time to empower women and also empower men, the doctors and all the other healthcare workers with the knowledge and the tools of how to truly approach this disparity and to you know, get rid of one flaw, one significant flaw, which ends up affecting a large proportion of the population. So with that, uh, we'll go on and uh, talk about the rest of the cases. Yeah, I'm really glad that we're speaking about this because gender bias in healthcare is becoming an epidemic. And um, I'm glad that we have research on these disparities to show how women and men are treated in medical settings and that it's a very concerning area for any woman uh, seeking health care. There's almost a stereotype about men and women when it comes to health problems, don't you think? There's always these conversations that suggest that, you know, men are less attuned to their symptoms and they don't visit doctors as much as women do. And they kind of, you know, paint this picture of men being a stoic, a silent stoic and women being hysterical hypochondriac seeking help for any and every small health issue. There's a, this, this proportionality of how we paint positive characteristics on men and negative on women. And this is not new. This has been going on for centuries, if not millennia. And it continues. And that language that exists in, in, in society, which I call part of culture, is contributing to the disparity that manifests in, in society. I mean, that's that, those language, that background language is significant. Right. And we have to bring it to the surface. You know, the best disinfectant is light. Yeah. You bring it to the surface and let light eliminate it. Love it. Love that analogy. And this has been going on for a while. We can even go back to the medieval times from the earliest days of medicine. Women were essentially considered as an inferior version of men. You and I were reading some articles from Aristotle's time where, you know, he made a distinction between the superior male form and the inferior female matter and basically characterizing women as a mutilated man. And, you know, it goes on to the medieval times where women were deemed unbalanced because of their wombs. And the funniest thing that I read the other night was that some doctors back then would recommend marriage as a cure for female psychological disorders. And I feel that this belief has persisted in, and its shades have persisted in Western medical culture. It, it has. I mean, even Freud and the entire uh, writings of Freud are fraught with this bias. For, uh, and that bias actually persisted in much of psychiatry and psychology because of this, the, the language that's, that actually wasn't started by Freud, but just perpetuated by Freud and, and others. And it's not just in psychiatry and, and many, many other fields. It's repeated that women have a hysterionic characteristics and women have inferiority um, complexes. And that bias has led us to where we are. Absolutely. And they're just not really, we haven't really spent enough time to understand a woman's physiology and biology and essentially attributed everything to very vague terms. 
And I think when you look at the history of medical and science literature and research, we really haven't been able to commit to, you know, women's research or female research. And when you look at most of the evidence that we have, they have been tested on cells, animals, and humans that are male. So most of the advances we've seen in medicine have come from study of male biology. And we literally have almost non-existence information about female biology when it compares to men. And it's natural. I mean, if, if you know yourself and outside of you, it, it's the other. And if you want to believe that you are good or you're the model, that you're the epicenter of reality, right. then the other must be, because of it's different, must be abnormal. Right. I mean, normal and abnormal. Those concepts actually come from this uh, aspect. Mm-hmm. So, of course, everything you see that's different must be the abnormal. And that has persisted. And and sometimes when we, we in the field of leadership and others, they say, you know, I will know when, when I see it or I'll know when, when this person speaks. And no, we actually are not very good at understanding the other. We are often wrong. Mm-hmm. If we go by our natural instincts, which are painted by the, our environment, by our culture, by our background, they're all biased. So give yourself pause, step back and try to you know, truly assess the other. Uh, in this case, the, the, I believe the superior or the other uh, gender, which is uh, the female, which we have to take it from their perspective by listening to the women, to, mm-hmm. uh, by studying those uh, conditions, by basically interacting more and not just extrapolating or guessing or filling the void of our knowledge with the, what makes us comfortable about ourselves, which is actually how data is filled. When people don't have data, what they do is fill the gap with the, or the absence with that concept that makes them comfortable about themselves. Right. And that leaves very little room because if I am good, what's left behind? The ungood the abnormal. Right. So instead of doing that, we really have to be data-driven. Agreed. I, I think that's why you and I are so passionate about understanding women's biology when it comes to disease, especially neurological diseases, which we'll definitely expand on hopefully later during this podcast and in the next. But let's talk about why. You know, why, why is this happening? I mean, obviously we gave an example of the historical aspects of, you know, just doing the same thing that we've been doing all these years. But, you know, now with some of the data that we have and some of the great research that has been done, we know that certain diseases, actually a lot of the diseases present differently in women. And that's why they're often misdiagnosed or missed completely. And they've been given just vague terms. You know, it's a mystery. So they're essentially understudied. The diseases are undertreated and they're frequently undiagnosed or misdiagnosed. And that's why this has led to a major health issue among women. It has. Uh, one of the whys, I know that we're coming back to the why, is the fact that we as humans, and I hate, I'm, I'm going to get to this, I hate the concept of common sense. The people that use the word common sense usually have the least common sense. <laughs> There is no such thing as common sense. In the 21st century world of complexity of, across you know, technology and, and society and layers of social interaction and, and different genders, uh, you know, uh, different races, different cultures, your sense is limited by your experience. And if that experience is not really that deep, which for a lot of people isn't, mm-hmm. you're actually reflecting that sense on a much broader reality. So true. Hold yourself back. Some humility. Study all the different aspects, different perspectives, and you'll see that there's an incredible complexity, beautiful complexity, and that will actually give us a better sense of other realities. I mean, we're talking about it as uh, me as a man, talking about a different gender that reproduces life, that produces life, that man doesn't have access to that as much as he thinks he does. And there was a joke there, but we're not gonna go there. We have a (laughs) PG-13 audience. And this incredible biology that from very early age creates life, has incredible empathy, 
a mechanism of intrinsic empathy. That's going to be a completely different session right, that I'll right. we'll talk what about. What a beautiful concept. Uh, correct. That, that, that's intrinsic in a mother and a woman in general. And then here I am, and I'm going to extrapolate layers and layers of meaning on somebody else that I, I haven't lived their experience. I haven't experienced. It doesn't mean that I can't learn. It doesn't mean that by studying, by listening, by talking, I can't learn. But just using a lazy word such as, or concept such as common sense, just, you know, relegating the complexity to the side. So I know that I got a little tangential, but it's critical that we kind of see the reality of where this comes from, because then this kind of thinking affects much greater aspects of society. Right. Well, let's get back to women and some of the concepts, some of the diseases and some of the consequences that we're seeing, some of the numbers that are scaring us. Yeah, and you'd think we would be you know, better at this by now because when you look at statistics, female general practitioners and family practitioners, they outnumber male ones. 52% of general practitioners are women compared to 48% men. And majority of the specialists though are are men 66% of them are but still you know you would you would think that we're doing better but we're not there are so many issues and especially with diseases like chronic pain chronic pain research shows that both doctors and nurse practitioners or anyone in the healthcare field they prescribe less pain medication to women compared to men, especially after procedures and surgeries, even though women report more frequent and severe pain levels. And there have been several studies. There was a study from University of Pennsylvania that showed that women waited 16 minutes longer than men to receive pain medication when they visited an emergency room. So they suffered longer. And they're more likely to be told that their pain is in their head, that it's psychosomatic, and that it's usually influenced by emotional distress or any stress in their life. I have personally seen this repeatedly. Oh yeah, it's a very common thing. Yeah. We see that in clinic and people who have, you know, women who have headaches who come to us or any chronic pain for that matter. In fact, different kind of medicines. Women are given more what they call prophylactic medications as opposed to men who are given stronger medications that can break through the pain. Yes. And, you know, having read this literature now, it was almost like a eureka moment. I, I actually saw those cases in the, in the emergency room. I saw those cases in the on the floor. Yeah. And I realized how important this is. It's, We're talking about pain. It's actually published. Women tend to get more antipsychotics and antidepressants for pain compared to men who get, you know, proper pain medication. Yeah. I mean, that, that says something as far as where the bias comes from. What, what the practicing physician that's giving the medicine, what they think the underlying cause is. That's amazing. That's amazing that the bias is reflected in the treatment. And in chronic pain, 70% of people who are impacted are women. And yet 80% of pain studies are conducted on male mice or human men. Can you believe that? That's crazy. Yeah. Especially since we're still doing mice studies, absolutely. which have shown no result in any... Yeah, absolutely. And then the, the number disparity. I'm still stuck on the fact that women get pain medication 16 minutes later, and it's usually antidepressants and antipsychotics. Yeah, yeah. And they're still trying to understand the exact reason for this discrepancy. And, you know, we haven't really been able to pinpoint that, but biology and, and hormones are suspected to play a role into this. So we have to be really open-minded when it comes to chronic pain because women feel it differently because of their biology. Absolutely. I mean, in many ways, so and, it, and it's real. Yeah. Because when it comes to other pain situations like pregnancy and childbirth and others, women are incredibly resilient and, and can withstand significant pain. Yeah. But when, and even in those situations, they probably, if, if men had to go through it, I guarantee you they would be knocked out right. every single time. But women uh, get less medications. And then when it comes to other kind of pains, again, Less medicines. Right. Less medicines and misdiagnosis. misdiagnosis. You and I know how many women, you know, go to different doctors to seek help for their pain. And, you know, many of these women were later diagnosed with, you know, serious neurological conditions like multiple sclerosis or some sort of a neuromuscular disease that affected their skeleton and their muscle. And these women always knew there was something wrong, but they have a tendency to discount that and they want to, you know, completely disregard it and not trust their own intuition. 
I don't know if I'm supposed to bring this story, but um, we're going through something yeah, like that. Course. My mother yeah. uh, had a fall this last weekend yeah. and her knee, she broke her patella and, and probably injured much more tomorrow. She's going through uh, surgery. And it's remarkable her ability to withstand pain. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's not even taking her pain medication. Yet, if I know for a fact if it was me, and you, you will agree with me, if it was me, <laughs> I would be in bad keep shape. quiet here. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. The, and, and her ability to withstand her, her grace, and, and I've seen this in lots of women. And even when they're given medication, they tend to take it less. She's amazing. I, but, I, I remember when we were sitting next to her, she was smiling at all the technicians. And you know, <laughs> she made sure she smiled at the technicians, and she would wince in pain whenever nobody would be around. All right. But yeah, her pain tolerance in women is quite high too. We know that. But let's move on from chronic pain to other diseases because yeah. it's not just pain, um, heart disease. There was a study from Yale University that found that many women hesitated to seek help for a heart attack because they worried about being thought of as hypochondriacs. And another study in the year 2000, this one was actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine it found that women are seven times more likely than men to be misdiagnosed and discharged in the middle of having a heart attack. Oh my goodness. And why? Because, you know, the medical concepts of most diseases are based on, again, the male physiology. And we know that in, when it comes to heart attacks, women have completely different symptoms than men. Men usually f- have chest pain and they Often. have discomfort. Yeah. And it's typically taken very seriously because that's the main sign. You, Whenever you see posters, it's like, oh, chest pain, heaviness. But for women, they're most likely to experience less typical symptoms like nausea, uh, vomiting, dizziness, general discomfort, and shortness of breath. And these are things that are easily missed and misdiagnosed as heartburns or indigestion. Or, or anxiety. Stomach, or anxiety and yeah. stomach ulcer. So, you know, sometimes there are any symptoms at all when people have, when women have heart attacks. Correct. And that has more consequences. Now we know that women have, there was a time that we thought that women had significantly lower rates of cardiovascular disease and atherosclerosis, but now we know that they have significant amount of cardiovascular disease and it has been ignored. When we were in Cedar Sinai, and, and Dr. Mertz, an amazing researcher yeah, and the cardiologist, Heart Center, yeah. they've done work on this. And the fact that women manifest the symptoms differently, they suffer as much as men. Of course, the age differences and the complexity of how and when they, uh, the heart disease manifests in women are different. But the prevalence is still significant. Yet the research done on women is so much less than what you would expect for the numbers. So that's another focus that we should actually start paying attention to because it's the second leading cause of mortality for both women and men. Absolutely. And when these women are having, you know, heart attacks in the studies, they found that they're less likely to get CPR compared to men from a bystander and they're more likely to die. And this this study was funded by the American Heart Association and the NIH, National Institutes of Health. They found that only 39% of women who have cardiac arrest, which is, you know, a heart attack, in a public place, they were given CPR compared to 45% of men. So 39 versus 45%. And men were 23% more likely to survive. And one of the study uh, leaders and researchers speculated that rescuers are probably worried about touching a woman's chest and removing their clothes. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, something as crazy as that would would lost would cause women's you know to lose their life. Yeah, that's remarkable. And imagine, I mean, if that information is brought to light, just knowing that will actually change those numbers. Right. I mean, we have to start talking about it. We have to start speaking about it mm-hmm. because it's just a matter of awareness, isn't it? Agreed. Yeah. Absolutely. Strokes. When it comes to strokes, women actually have a higher likelihood of being misdiagnosed. There was a study that showed that women are 33% more likely to be misdiagnosed. And according to a study from Johns Hopkins uh, University, most of these women go to the emergency room with atypical symptoms like dizziness and headache, and they're often sent home 
with, you know, a very minor diagnosis like a migraine or an inner ear infection like that mm-hmm. causes vertigo. And they just brush it off. And what happens is uh, slowly and gradually this stroke gets worse. And especially the posterior circulation stroke, which happens at the back of the brain and the cerebellum, they're missed in a lot of young women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it, it's just it, this blew my mind too because you deal with strokes all the time. I do. Like I didn't know it was as high as thirty three percent, which is just incredible. Yeah. You know, when it comes to psychological issues like depression and anxiety, you know, of course, and there are a lot of factors that can lead to depression in women, whether it's genetics or reproduction or hormonal or social. The condition is still frequently misdiagnosed, and there was one report by the Mental Health America. They showed that 12 million women experience clinical depression every year, and it's misdiagnosed 30 to 50% of the times. And instead of this being addressed and taken seriously, it's often considered as a mood issue, and that's something women have to face, and it'll fade over time, and they're never given the right medication right away. Correct. Uh, The mood issue comes up over and over again. Yeah. And that bias has been perpetuated for centuries and it's actually seeped through many different aspects of culture uh, that women are moodier it's that time of month it's that you know it's a woman's issue reality um, weak nerves work weak nerves bothers me that reality is that it that's so false i mean you know i have a joke i say i might be politically incorrect but let's go with it i said you know when men say that it's that time of month for women Somebody should say, like, what about the rest of the month where men, uh, you know, are, are, are often crazy? I mean, all the murders, all the wars, everything else. Right. I know that I'm way out of the bounds, but I'm going to say it anyway. But th- this is a perpetuation of a falsehood that is not insignificant because it actually then goes into all the other aspects of life, including what we've been talking about. Right. The biases in the, in the emergency room, the biases in the clinic and the biases in the hospital setting, which costs lives. We should start addressing this issue immediately because we're talking about thousands and thousands of lives lost. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think this, this is one of the area that, that actually this area of depression and anxiety seeps into all the other uh, conditions and uh, situations as well. Because, you know, if you have chronic pain, depression and anxiety is associated with it. If you have issues with getting the right kind of Help when it comes to any medical condition, anxiety is a part of it. So I, and, I feel like it's associated with um, all the other conditions. And the symptoms of anxiety and depression are so vague often that uh, other diseases are missed. The anemias, the, the sleep disorders, the, mm. you know, the, the physiological conditions like thyroid disease, the, the vitamin deficiencies, Absolutely. all of those, those are missed because they're easily ascribed to, oh, you're depressed. You, maybe you should take some antidepressant. Sometimes they're not even told that they're depressed, but the, the underlying you know, thought process is that this, the, what's causing it is depression and they're just passed off with an SSRI or an antidepressant of some sorts. And the underlying cause, which is more common Yes. You know, the anemias yes. and the vitamin deficiencies, the thyroids Some metabolic are, issue. Are, are yeah, forgotten or not diagnosed. And that has long-term consequences. Absolutely. Now, this next area, this next condition is where it's quite evident that there's a huge gender bias and uh, there's a problem of misdiagnosis. Endometriosis. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. One in 10 women suffer from endometriosis, but it takes on average seven to eight years to be diagnosed. Can you believe that? Yeah. So let's talk about what endometriosis is. It's basically exogenous tissue that's, that grows in the pelvic space, which means it's tissue that's not supposed to be there. Right. And the body reacts to it. And it's an endometrial tissue. So endometrial it's like the tissue. insides of the uterus. Correct. And it changes its biology with the circulating hormones um, every month in the women's body. So these become active and deactivate with the changes in the hormonal cycle. And they're very, very painful. And unless a woman with endometriosis is trying to conceive, they're often overlooked by doctors. And it's so sad to see that the attitude towards women is, 
basically just have babies and um, multiple reports and you know a lot of great doctors have shown that when people present with endometriosis initially, they're missed. They're Correct. not even subjected to the right kind of diagnostic procedures. They're yeah. not given the right medication. And the only time that this is addressed is when they're trying to conceive. Correct. And it, it often also affects the you know childbirth. Right. Uh, so right. a lot of women who have endometriosis can't have children. And and its diagnosis sometimes has is, is a little invasive. You know, a laparoscopy where they have to go in and actually visualize those tissues and then get rid of them. But by not doing so, you put somebody through, you know, years and years of torture and pain and suffering. And on top of that, you add a psychological, you know, label. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And a lot of doctors view these patients as having a lot of, you know, psychological issues as much as they have pathological issues because of the chronic pain that they go through. And, you know, it's it's getting better, I think, because of the conversation that everybody's having. And like you said earlier, the antidote is conversations and information. The antidote is also, the, that's why I'm speaking as, as your husband and as a man, as a doctor, is that everybody gets into conversation about things that are not related to just them or their gender or their group, it's critical that we speak up and and kind of acknowledge and empathize and, and listen and, and investigate and research and, and uh, uh, you know, everybody else that, that is different. And, and especially we're talking about more than 50% of the population, women, um, if, if, if even some of these numbers are near reality, and they are because the data comes, I mean, that's from research. That's tremendous amount of suffering and deaths that are caused by just the fact that we have a bias. Right. That we can't accept that. So true. Let's talk about a neurological condition that you and I see most often in the emergency room and in our clinic, multiple sclerosis. So MS, multiple sclerosis, is a uh, demyelinating disease. Myelin are these fatty tissue that wrap up the connections between neurons. So they basically facilitate nerve conduction. And if the myelin is affected, nerve conduction is slowed down. And it's and almost like an insulation. It is. It is. And and in MS, something happens. It's an autoimmune kind of phenomenon that affects the different patches of these uh, these myelin in the brain in the central nervous system. It can be in the spine as well, but it's in the central nervous system, not peripheral or not in the you know your hands. It's in the uh, spine or in the brain, and they're patchy. So it's not you know you don't see you can see all kinds of different symptoms. For example, somebody can have loss of vision in one eye and at the same time have numbness in the other hand. And so it's not following a, a consistent pattern. And because of its inconsistency, it's often attributed to um, non-neurological condition, or they call it, they used to call things like, say things like it's supertentorial. Well, there's no such thing as supertentorial. Tentorium is the part of the brain above. So it's basically saying it's above the brain basically saying that it's psychological and they would just pass it off and the person would be sent home and the demyelination would continue and the symptoms would continue and the person would get worse. And because of the vacillating or the changing nature of MS, it, sometimes it would go away, but then it would come back and get yeah. worse over time. Yeah. And and of course, on top of that, the fact that MS happens more frequently in women. Right. Three times more common in women than in men. Correct. Many of the diseases like migraines and others are more common in women and other diseases are more common in men. So those disparities should be uh, acknowledged. And the treatment is usually either um, solumedrol, uh, steroids, or uh, this immune modulating drugs that actually affect immunity. And But often women are not getting those treatments on time. In fact, they're not getting the right diagnosis on time. Right. And it's fairly simple to get the diagnosis. You do an imaging, sometimes you do lumbar puncture, which is the fluid from the spine. From that, you get the you measure the proteins, the particular type of proteins that you see in MS. In, yeah. And then you can say that this person has MS or not. So, right. but it's often delayed. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, most of the time the symptoms are pain and numbness and weakness. So it's easily disregarded. A lot of times they come in with just headaches and some vision problems. And um, I've seen it many times when maybe perhaps the doctors don't have the right kind of diagnostic tools. And, you know, these women are usually sent home 
with the least amount of, you know, weak medication and they're never addressed. And then somebody, some neurologist who is pretty skeptical or has some curiosity to find out what's going on and you look at their brain and you see all these, you know, white matter uh, changes. changes and specs and um, that correlate, you know, very well with their physical examination. And, and often the acute um, event can be shortened or treated right. with the right medication. Yet the person who goes home with these symptoms, they're left pretty much debilitated because even if they can move, they can walk, they can't do it well. And they have these fatigue symptoms and everything else. And on top of that, they have this sense of guilt that may, you know, maybe there was nothing wrong with me. Right. Remember, we said that often women self-limit. They doubt themselves. Yeah. The research shows that women often doubt themselves with these symptoms because that cultural bias has seeped into women as probably more than any other uh, men because yeah. they've experienced it. So this leaves person debilitated for years with the sense of guilt. And at the same time, they haven't gotten the kind of uh, treatment or follow-up and they still have to work. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're usually expected to take control with their minds of yeah. their disease. And they essentially accept their illness and they're told to make some lifestyle changes and address their stress and conforming to the social roles of, you know, whether it's a wife or a mother, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we're, we're doing wrong. So another disease that usually ends up being misdiagnosed are migraines and migraines that are associated with more serious conditions in the brain. Migraines, you know, women are three times more likely to get migraines than men. And 17% of women in total experience migraines as opposed to only 6% of men. Yeah. And a lot of times they are not treated properly because, you know, it's fine. Yes, it's a pain, but we have such great medication for migraine now to prevent them. We have preventive therapy and we also have, you know, abortive therapy, which means the medication that you get right away to get rid of that pain. And most women don't get the right kind of treatment for that. And also we know that there's lifestyle factors that, that affect migraine. Yes. We will t we'll have a conversation about that in a separate talk. Right. But migraines should be addressed. They're, it's incredibly limiting. About 40% or more of migraines uh, happen in one side of the head. Uh, although the name comes from hemicrania, meaning one side, but, but there's a, now we know that there's a large proportion that happens both sides of the head. But, and often there's effect of your vision is affected. And sometimes on rare occasions you have even numbness and tingling in the arms, but it's, it's fairly ubiquitous, fairly common True. and incredibly debilitating. Yeah. And as I just said, it's often undertreated. And imagine, you know, the ease with which you and I deal with this. Yeah. It's often treatable now. Very. And with all the great ignored. medication. Yeah, it is ignored. Yeah, because I think there's a perception that they should deal with it. Yes. They really, that's the baseline. That's the message. Just deal with it. You're going to get better. Or maybe you're just exaggerating the pain. What arrogance. Yeah. So I think we talked about the importance of, you know, shining some light. We talked about the profound lack of knowledge and clinical research about the differences in the symptoms between men and women and how they can experience you know, the same disease and have completely different experiences and symptoms. And so women are more commonly misdiagnosed because their complaints are dismissed by the doctors they're seeking help from. And instead of taking their words seriously, their symptoms are commonly seen as just complaints or something that's in their head, essentially, and that they need to stop worrying about it. And so that's the problem. And we have solutions for that. Yeah, there's a second one, which is the self-regulation one. Right. Because women feel a sense of guilt or a sense, of, or it's been imposed on them. They self-control, they under-report. They undervisit the emergency room. There's a shame associated there with is. it. There is. And they accept whatever minimal treatment that's been given to them. So the combination becomes quite significant when it comes to the ultimate treatment of the underlying disease. I know this is just a, you know, a personal feeling, but I always, whenever I'm in the emergency room, when patients come in, women are more apologetic their symptoms compared to men. Men are very direct. They say, you I'm know, sorry? I have... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> men say, I have this, this, this. Yes. And they always know what they want. But women, whenever they're presenting their symptoms, when you're getting yeah. a history from them, exactly. they're unsure. 
they're scared, and they're apologetic. And then the, you know, every sentence about an objective finding is followed by a reassuring me or whoever the doctor is that they're telling the truth. It's such an amazing difference of the level of confidence that men and women show about their symptoms and about their experience of the same condition. Yeah, absolutely. So now we know the problem, but we also have very little evidence to show that female providers offer women more equal care than male providers do. That, you know, the best doctor is the one who listens to you and who views healthcare as a conversation and not just, you know, an order placed for a medication or yeah. a diagnostic test. And I think that's what needs to be highlighted for women to find that right doctor, that right person who listens to them. Correct. I mean, it, it is, it, if you take any, everything else away from this conversation, from this talk is that healthcare is still an art. And at the center of this is conversation and listening and empathy and, and, and broadening your vision of experiences. I mean, let's make it beautiful the way it was meant to be. Uh, uh, this last week I was in Boston and there was a conversation whether AI was going to take over, you know, doctors' roles. And I was on the affirmative side, you're saying, yes, of course. And somebody said, what about personality and character? I said, have you talked to your latest doctor about that? <laughs> Where was the character? And but it was a joke, but, but, you know, until AI can do that, and that's a different, you know, conversation altogether. Right, I think right. uh, I, I'm kind of on the side that I think that um, it can do that at some point. You're thinking that the AI algorithm can uh, deduce a disease better and recommend treatment for it better than you, human beings? Yeah, well, that's a separate conversation. I don't want to complicate this conversation right. with that. But it's, let's just get to the human side of it, which is basically, can we use algorithm and instead of our biases, or let's use reason instead of our biases and deducing, um, ascribing uh, certain features to, uh, to symptoms. Meaning right. if somebody's coming to you, uh, we're just naturally designed to have some emotional input oh, before, even, before even thinking about something, some emotional input. Just think about where that emotional input is coming from. Right. It's not coming from your vast experience with all the different shades of humanity. It's right. not. It's something you picked up, you know, in your teenage years. I always say, you know, you're stuck <laughs> with your teenage uh, habits. You want to, you know, you want to live with it. It's got to come from data. It's That's got to true. come from the person in front of you. It's, it, we can truly get data from the person in front of you by just listening right. and, and talking and going back and forth. So true. Uh, uh, now, the other problem is the healthcare system is designed where you have very limited time. And if you have limited time and you have limited tools and limited, you know, uh, ability to deduce the, those human aspects, you naturally slip to your basic instincts. I agree with you. I, I just, I, I think, like you said, a good physician can have biases, but, you know, a good physician is also able to step back and look at the bigger picture and to um to tell the person that you know i i i hear you let's let's work with this together i think one thing that can be done given that we just talked about the limitation of time for the physicians a lot of times that's a problem solved above their scale meaning yeah. that at the research level and research should look at the complexity of human interaction and and let's talk about women let's start doing research as it pertains to women's diseases and right. women's situations and contexts and the interactions in the emergency room and in the clinic. Once we have that data, then we can create, you know, um, natural patterns of how to approach women different from men. And so true. So I think it starts at that level. Then it can then seep down to each individual physician saying, you know, don't just judge people because of your biases, uh, because you can actually cause harm like C the CPR data that you just gave us. Right. I mean, just being aware of that bias, I think can make significant changes. Very true. So that's what doctors, we and healthcare providers have to be aware of. But I think it's also important for patients, for women patients to be um, empowered and brave to ask questions. Proactive. Um, absolutely. So, you know, whenever they're faced with the concept of watch and wait, they should 
ask why. It's always really helpful to ask the doctors what the guidelines say. Correct. Because if they stick to the guideline, you know, find out what the guidelines suggest, what the next best step is, I think that's a fairly data-driven and an objective way to approach this. Hoping that the guidelines have addressed, you know, have been uh, created with women in mind, though. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, that's another problem. And we need a lot of progress in that field, too. Um, but, you know, just to to know that if they are dismissed or if they f- if women feel dismissed, that they should step up and say that they're very concerned, that they feel that there's more to the story, the, to the picture, and to find out why. It's, it's okay to stand up and say why and trust their intuition and trust their feelings. And a good doctor will always honor their request and will work with them. At least have a conversation with them. Right. Absolutely. Well, this was beautiful. Next time, I think we should sit down and talk about Alzheimer's disease in women. Yeah, that's a complete subject in itself. The fact that dementia in general and Alzheimer's in particular is significantly, you know, different in women and much more prevalent in women. Uh, We have to talk about what the theories are behind it and why it's important for all women to know what the causes are and what we need to do uh, as a society in general, but also addressing the disease in the context of women. With that, I think it's important to leave this conversation with some, you you already said what, what women have to do, but all of us as physicians and as a society really have to start um, looking at women's conditions differently, have to have conversation and research and push for research in women's diseases. And then and only then we will have an appropriate healthcare system for women. As it is, it's a male model being implemented on women. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I can't wait to talk about this again. Fantastic.